Testament today. As James said, we're continuing thinking about resurrection today after what we heard from him last week and from Colossians 3 about the impact that Jesus' resurrection has on the way that we live now. And this morning we're thinking about resurrection bodies, maybe not something we think about super frequently. But we do regularly say the Apostles' Creed together when we meet on Sunday morning. Some of you may be really familiar with the Apostles' Creed, perhaps some of you less so. So I've got a little bit of a challenge for those of you who are familiar with the Apostles' Creed. I wonder if you can remember the final two lines of the Creed. We believe in the final two lines. Call them out. Okay, well done. The resurrection of the body and life everlasting. In those two lines, we move really quickly over two really huge kind of mind-blowing concepts, don't we? The resurrection of the body and life everlasting. Both are beyond our personal experience. Both are pushing the limits of our understanding. Both of them are really challenging ideas. But of the two, I think the idea of the resurrection of the body is the more challenging one. Perhaps we can see this in some research that the Centre for Public Christianity commissioned a couple of years ago. They got some research done by McCrindle Research and it was a survey of a thousand people and it asked questions about people's openness to a range of spiritual realities. It asked about ghosts, miracles, angels, about whether people thought there's a higher power or God, about the soul, about what is ultimate meaning or purpose and does it exist, about life after death. So I just want to show you a couple of slides. You might not be able to see them really well, but I want to just look at a couple of these questions. This first slide summarises responses of 18 to 26-year-olds. And on the far right, there was the responses to a question about life after death. So 48% in this age group said that they believe that life after death exists. That's pretty high. And then 28% more said that they are open to the possibility that life after death exists. Both of those are more than I would have thought. So about three quarters of the people who responded to this survey said they either believed in life after death or thought it was a possibility. There's another question I want to look at now. And this question asked, did Jesus Christ rise from the dead? And the figures are a little bit different here. So 23.6% of people said, I am certain that Jesus rose from the dead. It's a much lower figure, but still probably higher than I might have expected. And another 19% said they think it's possible that Jesus rose from the dead. So less than 50% of respondents thought it's either certain or possible that Jesus rose from the dead. So that's significantly less than the number of people who thought that there is life after death. And maybe, maybe that makes sense. The idea of life after death is quite amorphous, isn't it? It's intangible. It taps into ideas of us having a soul. It's a hopeful, kind of comforting idea in many ways. But the idea of Jesus rising from the dead is much more confronting. It runs counter to our experience of everyday life. 
it raises all sorts of questions. And then the idea that we might also rise from the dead raises even more questions. Because we all know, don't we, that when we die, our bodies don't last. If people get buried, then their body decomposes. If people are cremated, their body turns into ashes. And so it seems kind of logical to say that if there is an afterlife, there's no coming back in these bodies. And so all of this anticipates the question we heard at the beginning of our reading today. How are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? We're going to dig into Paul's answer in a moment. But we've come into 1 Corinthians 15 halfway through what is a really kind of logical argument where Paul builds uh, from point to point. And so I want to go back to the beginning of chapter 15 because Paul rests his teaching about our resurrection from the dead on his teaching about Christ's resurrection from the dead. So this is what Paul says at the beginning of the chapter. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born." At the heart of the gospel is Christ's death for our sins, his burial and his resurrection. Death and burial are everyday occurrences in our world, but resurrection is not. So Paul makes it very clear that the resurrection of Jesus was confirmed by eyewitnesses. The 12 disciples, 500 followers of Jesus, most of whom are still alive, says Paul, implying you can go and ask them about it if you want to. The apostles, James, Paul himself, a lot of people saw and heard Jesus after he was raised from the dead. Paul writes to give us confidence in the bodily resurrection of Jesus as a historical event. And on the basis of Jesus' resurrection, he goes on to answer the questions of verse 35. How are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? Which seem to me to be really good questions. So it's a bit of a surprise to then read Paul's initial response. How foolish. But I guess there are two ways to ask questions like these. One is as an honest inquiry, generally, uh, genuinely interested in what the resurrection body might be like. The other way of asking questions like, like these is as someone who thinks the whole idea is ludicrous, someone who's hoping to trip up the person of whom you're asking the question. Paul got both of those types of responses when he talked about the resurrection from Jesus on the Areopagus in Athens. This is Acts 17. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. Here in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is answering the sneering sort of questioner. Paul isn't embarrassed and for him... It's the dismissive sceptic who's the foolish one. That's why he says, how foolish. 
Paul thinks this is a silly question. These are silly questions because they don't take seriously the power of God when contemplating the thought of a resurrection body. But even though Paul says how foolish, he then goes on to answer these questions really fully. They are valid questions and that's why Paul answers them and takes them seriously as well as indicating that sometimes they can be foolish questions. His answer might not satisfy everyone but it helps us to fill out what we're saying when we say the Apostles' Creed together. I believe in the resurrection of the body. And Paul's explanation falls into two parts. First of all, the how and what of resurrection bodies, answering the questions in verse 35. And then later he helps us think about the why, when and so what of resurrection bodies. So first of all, the how of resurrection bodies in verses 35 to 38. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined. And to each kind of seed, he gives his own body. I know we have some amazing gardeners here in this congregation. At this point, I felt my inadequacies as a gardener. I googled, are seeds alive? And I quickly went down a rabbit hole I didn't want to be down, so I backed out. The point here isn't the technicalities, but the analogy, the picture that Paul paints. When you plant a seed, you don't do it so that the seed stays alive in the ground just as it is. You do it so that the seed dies because a plant or a tree has grown out of it. And when you want a new plant or a new tree to grow, it's not like a production line of cars where you go and buy a new one from the dealer. You plant a seed and out of that seed comes the tree that you want. God gives it a body as he has determined and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. Throughout his analogy, Paul mixes his terminology of plants and seeds and of body terminology. And the picture is this. One thing dies and is buried. Then something new comes, out, comes alive out of what has died. The two are connected, but not the same thing. And that's really obvious when we look at pictures like these. These are acorn seeds. And out of these, when they're planted, grow oak trees. This picture of life coming out of death is Paul's answer to how are the dead raised. Just as God gives each seed a new body when it's planted, so God gives those who trust in Christ a new body after their death. There's a beautiful note of God's sovereignty and grace in Paul's answer. God gives each one a body as he has determined. After our death, clearly we have no agency or ability to act for ourselves, but God will give us a body as he has, term, has determined. I don't know how many of you have seen someone after they've died. I have a few times and it's really confronting. The first time I saw someone who was dead was when I was in year 12 at school. We had a family living next door to us and they had three or four children. One of them was Vicky, who was about six years younger than me. Really sadly, she had leukaemia and 
she, she, she died when she was in year seven. I was in year 12. And I went along to the funeral with my mum. They were an Italian family, and so the funeral was in a church, and their custom was that they had an open casket and everyone in the church walked past the casket. And so I did. I was really nervous. But I can still remember the picture I have in my mind of Vicky in, in the, the coffin. She looked beautiful. But the thing that shocked me was how dead she looked. It wasn't like she was asleep at all. Clearly, there was no life there. There was no person there. This was a body so different to when I had seen her alive. Death is incredibly confronting. But God gives us a message of hope, a beautiful message of hope. How are the dead raised? God, by his sovereign will and power, will give us a body as he has determined. Out of death, God will bring life. That leads into the second question that Paul mentioned in verse 35. With what kind of body will they come? Again, Paul starts with an analogy. Verse 39, not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, fish another. There are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. But the splendour of the heavenly bodies is one kind and the splendour of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendour, the moon another, the stars another. Star differs from star in splendour. It's a really obvious point, isn't it? Different parts of creation are made of different stuff according to their purpose and needs. Fish have scales and gills. Birds have feathers and wings. Elephants and polar bears are really different to each other because they live in really different parts of the earth. Verse 42, so will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonour. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. It's a beautiful description, isn't it? There's a poetic beauty to the way Paul writes these verses. It's interesting that in their poetic brevity, these verses don't say who does the raising. But in verse 38, God is the one who gives us our natural bodies. And the implication here is that it is God who will raise the dead. Our bodies will be raised imperishable by God. We will be raised in glory by God, raised in power by God, and raised as spiritual bodies by God. Think back to those pictures of the acorn and the oak tree. There's an organic connection between the two, right? But there's also a huge discontinuity between the appearance and characteristics of the seed and the appearance and characteristics of the tree that grows from it. In a really similar way, Paul wants us to realise that we would be foolish to look at our decaying, falling apart bodies and think we could actually discern from our present appearance what our bodies might look like in the resurrection. The difference between the two will be as dramatic as day and night, as seed and flower. Sisters and brothers, the answer to the question about what kind of body 
is that our resurrection bodies will be incorruptible, glorious, powerful, spiritual, suited to resurrection life. Our resurrected bodies will be like Christ's resurrected body. In verse 44, if there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, the last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual didn't come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. As is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. Where did Paul learn about the nature and characteristics of the resurrection body? He learned it from his knowledge and experience of Christ's resurrection body. Remember, Jesus appeared to Paul. In fact, what we learn here is that Christ's resurrection body is kind of a prototype of our own. I wonder if any of you watch MasterChef. I've sort of given up on it, but I did watch some of the early seasons. And one of the segments I found really interesting, although also a bit painful, was a segment where a celebrity or well-known chef would come on and they would create this incredible masterpiece. And then the poor MasterChef contestants had the challenge of trying to recreate what this celebrity chef had made. And so unbelievably to me, contestants were asked to create things like this. We've got a few pictures up here on the screen. Now, I don't know how these were even made once, let alone needing to be copied by uh, people who were contestants on the show and, show. and often the copies weren't anywhere near as good as the originals. But amazingly, what we read here in 1 Corinthians 15 is that our resurrection bodies will be like Jesus' resurrection body. Paul makes the same connection elsewhere. In Philippians 3, he says, At the second coming, the Lord Jesus Christ will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. And in Romans 6, we will certainly be united with Christ in a resurrection like his How will we be raised by God's power? What kind of body will we have? We will have a body like Christ's resurrection body. But this idea of a spiritual body is kind of an odd one for us, isn't it? We think spiritual, intangible, body, tangible. One commentator explained it like this. Paul's reference to a spiritual body is the most elegant way he can find of saying both that the new body is the result of the Spirit's work, answering how does it come to be, and that it's the appropriate vessel for the Spirit's life, answering what sort of a thing is it. So the how of resurrection bodies is by God's will and power through death and burial to life. The what of resurrection bodies is a body like Christ's resurrection body. Next in this chapter, we read about the why and when of our resurrection bodies in verses 50 to 57. And why we need resurrection bodies is at first sight a recap of what our resurrection bodies will be. So verse 50, I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. 
for the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. So as we've already thought about, our resurrection bodies will be made of different stuff to our current bodies because resurrection life will be different to our current life. Our present bodies need to be transformed to make us ready for resurrection life. But there's also a deeper reason that we need resurrection bodies and that is the sting and victory of death. Verse 54, when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The first car that I owned was kind of a little bit like this one. It was a 21-year-old Ford Laser. It's stylish, isn't it? <laughs> it was a great car because it just kept on keeping on when I was a theological student. I had a great mechanic who raved about this car and I agreed with him. It did have a few surface problems, literally. So when it rained, it would leak. If I managed to park my car on the hill I lived on, downhills, all the leak would drain out of the car. If I had to park uphill, there was a puddle which I'd have to bail out with a bucket. But the engine kept going and I was really thankful for that while I was a student. But when I finished college and was working again, I saved pretty hard to buy a new car. And when I was ready to do that, I went along to my mechanic to talk about what kind of car should I buy. I was pretty keen to buy another Ford Laser because this one had been so amazing. I was really surprised when he said, no, don't do that. The new lasers that were being produced weren't anywhere near as good as my trusty 21-year-old model. They had some significant issues, he told me. It reminded me of times when a recall is issued on a particular make and model of car. Even the best make of car can sometimes have an irretrievable fault in a particular model. Sometimes the issue is so serious that the manufacturer will give you a new model to replace the faulty one. Humanity is like a car that has an irretrievable fault. Our fault is sin which leads to death. It's in every one of us. But in his life, Jesus fulfilled the law. He didn't sin. He lived a perfect life so that he could deal with our sin on the cross. He has taken the sting out of death by dying in our place, by being raised to life, defeating death and offering us resurrection life. It's an amazing thing. Jesus offers us victory over death. He offers us resurrection bodies when our physical bodies get recalled in death. These new bodies are a new model, not completely different, but perfect and without the irretrievable fault of sin that is in our present bodies, our current models. Imagine life where death has been defeated, where death has no sting. That's what God offers us as we trust in Christ. It sounds almost too good to be true, doesn't it? That's why Paul grounds all of this 
in the historical event of the resurrection of Jesus. It happened once. It will happen again for all of those who trust in Jesus. When will this happen? Verse 51, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will all be changed. This will happen when Jesus returns. So why do we need resurrection bodies? We need resurrection bodies that are perfectly suited to resurrection life, and we need new bodies because we need bodies that don't have our irretrievable fault of sin. And our new resurrection life in those bodies will begin when Jesus returns. So what does all of that mean for us now? It certainly gives us hope for the future. It gives us hope in the face of death. But that's not all. Verse 58, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. Paul encourages us three ways in this verse. Stand firm. Don't be moved by anything. Throw yourselves fully into the work of the Lord. I wonder what these three things look like for you. What will help you stand firm in the gospel of Christ? What will help you to keep standing firm always? Are you doing those things? What might make you vulnerable to being moved from that firmness? Perhaps there's a public narrative that makes you doubt the goodness of Christian faith. Perhaps your experience of life in a world of suffering threatens to move you. Perhaps your expectations of God in this life haven't been met. Paul's encouragement is do not be moved, not by anything. That doesn't mean putting our heads in the sand and pretending these questions, these challenges, these doubts don't exist. We need to be honest with our questions, honest with our challenges. Explore them, ask them, look for answers. But also face these challenges with the realities that we've heard in 1 Corinthians 15. The realities of the death, the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. Finally, what does it look like for you to throw yourself fully into the work of the Lord? This phrase refers to the things that we do out of service for Christ. It doesn't mean everyone needs to be a Christian minister. But these are things we wouldn't do if it wasn't for our faith in Jesus. Things like praying, things like serving at church, things like being prepared to give a reason for the hope that we have to anyone who might ask, why are you a Christian? Things like loving God with all of our heart, loving our neighbours sacrificially. What is it for you? What does it look like for you to throw yourself fully into the work of the Lord? This verse gives wonderful meaning to life. One writer put it this way, there is an underlying continuity between present bodily life and future bodily life. And this gives meaning and direction to present Christian living. I wonder if any of you watch q and I'm 
watch every now and then, and I happened to watch on Easter Monday. And perhaps fittingly on Easter Monday, the first question was this one. It's a huge question. As Australia becomes more diverse, both religiously and ethnically, do you think the Easter story is still relevant today? What a big question. Do you think the Easter story is still relevant today? There were five panellists as usual. This question was directed at the Anglican Archbishop of Sydney, Kanishka Raphael. He did a good job answering, but how would you answer? I've been thinking about this question since then. How would I answer this question? There are lots and lots of ways to answer, lots of things we might say. Do you think the Easter story is still relevant today? What we've heard this morning is one of the reasons that the answer to that question has to be yes. Yes, more than ever, the Easter story is relevant today. Across cultures, across religions, across people of different kinds of ages, across genders, across everything that differentiates people, there is one commonality. We all face death. The Easter story offers what no other faith offers, what no political ideology offers, what no worldview offers. It offers a man who was raised from the dead to life forever. A man who offers us what he has. A new body and life forever with him. It's an outrageous claim. It's a claim rooted in history. If you haven't investigated this, let me encourage you, investigate. This claim is too big to ignore. If you have investigated this claim, if you're convinced, then brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. Amen.